Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's history class. Before we get started today, I'm going to do a shout-out for three young ladies. Or maybe that's three shout-outs for each one. Either way you want to count them, that's what I'm going to do. And what do these three young ladies have in common? One of the things they have in common is they do not know each other. Another thing they have in common is not any of these three young ladies ever took me for a history class. So what do they have in common besides those two things? They're all podcasters. I'm going to just tell you real briefly about each one of them. The first one I'm going to tell you about is a young lady by the name Amanda Shea. I met Amanda when she was about five years old because her mother took everything I taught at Kilgore College. And when she was no longer a student, we still remain friends and are friends to this day. And once in a while, we get together for lunch. And when I met Amanda the first time, we had gotten together for lunch. And there she was, this beautiful young lady, five years old, or maybe six. And after being introduced to Amanda, I asked, how are you, Amanda? And I've never forgotten what she said. Two words, I'm well. And I thought right then and there, she is the grown-up in the room. And she went on and grew up, graduated from Van High School, where her mom teaches, and then went to Mary Baldwin University in Virginia, a female college, and graduated with a marketing degree. Amanda, I am very proud of you, and so proud that you are a podcaster. And the next one is Emily Moore. I knew Emily before she was born, because I knew her mom and dad. And so from the moment she was born, I watched Emily, and she grew to be a beautiful, young, intelligent, sweet, kind lady. Now, I've not seen Emily for a while, because she moved, and her mom moved. But I do know that she is a podcaster, and she is enrolled at the University of North Texas as a history major. I'm going to say that again, podcasters. Emily Moore, with no influence by me, on her own, is a history major at the University of North Texas. Emily, if I could think of any other words to show how proud I am of you, I will let you know on another podcast. And the last one I'm going to mention is a young lady that doesn't even know I'm going to do a shout-out for her. She is very recent in the Mr. Stroud's History Class podcast, but there she is, and that's Kaylee Ashby. Now, Kaylee, again, never had me for history, but I did help her a little bit on an online history class at UT. Excuse me, I misspoke at Kilgore College. It was a class that I taught at Kilgore College where I taught And so how much did I help Kaylee with her history, 1302 history? 1 to 10 scale, 1 to 10. We know what a 10 is, right? I helped her maybe a 1. She did a tremendous job. And she is now enrolled at University of Texas at Tyler nursing program. She is going to be a tremendous nurse because she's a tremendous person. Those are my three shout-outs. And so... If anyone ever says that these young people, you just don't know what's coming over, you don't know what's wrong with them, 
you just say you would not say that if you knew Jennifer Adams, Dana Helen, Emily Moore, Amanda Shea, and Kelly Ashby. Now that I've done my shout outs, what I'm going to talk about today is the rock in the pond with all the ripples and trying to tell about each ripple. And the pond this time is going to catch the rock that has Antietam written on it. The bloodiest single day in American history, the ripples are everywhere. So, to finish up with the Antietam battle and the lecture, the first book I did was inscribed Union Swords, and I was fascinated with those swords, fascinated with the newspaper articles. Those were my first two books, Civil War Sword Presentations as reported by the Boston Daily Evening Transcript, 1861 to 1865. Oh my goodness, the fascination with those articles. About five years ago, I was able to purchase another sword And getting on microfilm, the newspaper for Washington, D.C. in 1863, this is what I found. Capital letters, and I will go on to tell you a typo. They left the S off. So it reads word presentation. But we know there's an S supposed to be there. Sword presentation. And I'm going to read it to you verbatim. Charles E. Tucker of this city, late of the California 1st Regiment, who on account of wounds received at Antietam has been rendered unfit for active service in the field and has been appointed a position in the Invalid Corps, was last night presented with a handsome sword by his friends and acquaintances in this city. The presentation speech was made by Mr. W.D. L. Wood, and was responded to by Lieutenant Tucker in an appropriate manner. And then I went on and added this. The inscription on the scabbard reads, Presented to 1st Lieutenant Charles Tucker, 1st California Regiment by his friends, Washington, June 19, 1863. Reading, I-N-G, learning. We've heard me say that a thousand times, maybe. A marvelous book received the Pulitzer Prize in 1940, Reveille in Washington. One chapter is titled, Army of the Wounded. And in that chapter, I learned about the Invalid Corps, and they had a special uniform. It was not the dark blue of the federal uniform, but powder blue, a light blue. I found a photograph of Charles Tucker, not in that book, but I acquired it through the Carlisle Barracks U.S. Army Military History Institute. And there he was. The Invalid Corps. Does that name shock anyone? Does that put the fear in you? The Invalid Corps was made up of wounded soldiers in the Union Army that was not wounded enough to go home and be discharged, but were not suitable for active service, as the article said. When the Union decided that Invalid Corps did not strike fear into anyone, they changed that to Veteran Reserve Corps. I got 
Lieutenant Tucker's service record. And then something happened. All of a sudden, he is being court-martialed. Something happened in Baltimore, Maryland. He was dishonorably discharged and sent to Leavenworth for two years. I got a friend that's a lawyer. I said, what in the world did he do to be discharged and sent to Leavenworth for two years? And we've decided it must have been a fight. Now, I'm just, I'm just throwing this in. It must have been a fight, maybe in a bar. You know what I'm thinking, podcasters? You don't know what I'm thinking, so I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking. Post-traumatic stress. Can you imagine being at Antietam? And where he was wounded, he just walked past Miller's Cornfield where all the dead and the wounded there when he was shot twice. Cannot prove it, but that's what I believe. Here's another thing about Antietam. Were we in class, and I did Antietam, I would have already held a book up. And that book is Antietam, The Photographic Legacy of America's Bloodiest Days by William A. Frasciento. F-R-A-S-S-A-N-I-T-O. And what I would have done is I would have opened that book to a page and that page would have been a photograph page 181 a photograph of a grave a soldier staring down at the grave and a dead Confederate soldier unburied next to the grave podcasters have you ever heard a photograph speaks a thousand words you know what I've heard that but I've never counted the words so I'm going to tell you what you would be looking at if you can somehow find this book you'll be looking at that grave of Union soldier looking down at it and that dead Confederate soldier next to it oh podcasters let me tell you what I have just told you that that represents I would ask my students this. After a battle with that many dead all over the place, who buries them? That photograph tells you everything. You know who's going to bury them? The army that won the battle because the others have retreated. Lee retreated. So the Union Army is going to bury those dead. Now, I don't want to get too graphic, podcasters. Because like I told you in another lecture, history does not make a bedtime story. You know what happens to unburied people. So when you got thousands of them out there, who are you going to bury first? You're going to bury your own people. Notice the photograph again, that grave. You're going to do your best to identify the dead. One of the big fears of soldiers on both sides was to be killed and not identified and the family never know what happened to you. There were no dog tags, which of course is a nickname for identification disc. The Americans don't get dog tags until World War I. And one of the fears, I'm going to repeat, was being killed and no one knowing who you were and your family not know. And so they would write their names in their jackets. 
They would sew little names in their jackets. Jewelers made a lot of money by selling identification discs with your name and regiment on that you would wear. I'm going to give a shout out to an outfit. You can find these. You can do this on the internet. You go to the Horse Soldier Gettysburg. And you look at the artifacts that they have. You're going to see Civil War photography. And they do have right now a pen that was sold that has the name and the regiment of the soldier. And they would put that on there. They wanted to be identified. The picture I just told you about is a grave with a, a headboard. And Fraciento looked at that headboard and he found the name of Lieutenant Clark. And on that page, you will also see First Lieutenant Clark, Charles Clark, a photograph of him. Now, I said you're going to bury your own people first. That Confederate soldier is still unburied. You come back later and get them and bury them. Now, by this time, you can imagine what it's going to be like. When's the last time you dug a grave there are thousands to be dug and so many of the confederates were just thrown into ditches thrown into holes sometimes there may be a board five reps down here i want to tell you something podcasters he has in that book a photograph of a 12 year old boy and the 12-year-old boy is Charles King. And he read, I read in there, he said he was not going to include that photograph because he wanted to do with the battle. And Charles King was 12 years old when he enlisted in a Pennsylvania regiment, the 49th Pennsylvania Volunteers Company F. That unit was not in action at Antietam, Remember? McClellan held the entire 5th Corps But when he read the story of Charles King, he said he had to include it. Charles King apparently got bored with school, and so he took up the drum. And the way they recruited in those days in the Civil War was if you wanted to be company commander, you went out and you recruited 100 men and then got elected company commander. And the company commander found it was easier to recruit men if you had someone playing a drum. And so Charles King played the drum, and that helped recruit men. And then he asked Charles King, would you like to be the drummer boy? Well, yeah, who wouldn't want to be a drummer boy? You go off to war? Yes, well, I, well, got a good parent's permission. Now, that's not, that's not the way it is now, but, you know, the company commander... Let's go down and ask your mom and dad. And they said, no, 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 he's not going to war. And then they said this. I tell you what, Mr. and Mrs. King, your boy will never go into battle. When we go into battle, he'll stay behind. And so the mom and dad said, okay. He's now 13 years old. The bloodiest battle, single day, in American history is being fought. And that regiment is not in the battle. 
but Confederates are firing at them anyway. And they're firing at artillery. Artillery shell hit near Charles King, wounded him. They took him to the hospital, and he died three days later, 13 years old. How many battles have I spoken to you that include drummer boys? That is the story of Antietam. Now, just to catch up in between Antietam and Gettysburg, the Union Army has suffered tremendous defeats. One of those defeats is the Battle of Fredericksburg that was fought on December 13, 1862. The Union commander was General Burnside. There's a movie, Gods and Generals, that have about this battle. That's based on a novel, a historical novel by the same name. And the reason I want you to I want to mention that is because it is a slaughter for the Union. That Burnside attacked the Confederates that were entrenched at Marie's Heights. Podcasters, it was like at Antietam when the Confederate Georgia Regiment was firing down at Burnside's Bridge. And they always say in the ducks in a row, it was a slaughter. A slaughter. How many were killed? Well, the casualties were, for the Union Army, 12,653 total. Killed in action, 1,284. Confederates, 5,377 total. 608 killed. Burnside is going to be relieved of his command after that. But there's something else. There's a monument there. And the monument is called the Angel of the Battlefield. I'm sorry, Angel of Marie's Heights. And you can Google this and see it. And it's a Confederate soldier giving water to a wounded Union soldier. And the inscription on the monument is this. Memoriam, in memoriam, Richard Roland Kirkland, Company G, 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, CSA, at the risk of his life, this American soldier of sublime compassion brought water to his wounded foe at Fredericksburg. The fighting men on both sides of the line called him the Angel of Marie's Heights. And again, the gods and generals, you can see the movie about that. It was a slaughter. And Robert E. Lee said, We are fortunate that war is so cruel because we should grow too fond of this. Burnside is relieved and he's going to be replaced with Joseph Hooker, whose nickname was Fighting Joe. And by the way, he did not like that nickname at all. Well, what can you do? You get a nickname, it's going to stick. And Fighting Joe Hooker is going to fight the Battle of Chancellorsville. Yet the first day, the second, is going to be May 2nd, 1863. Hooker has 130,000 men. He's going to try to defeat Lee's 80,000 men. Now, you can look this up. You can read books. Let me remind you, podcasters. Everything that I tell you, there is a book. And there's where you find all the details, and they're marvelous. The ones I'm going to suggest to you 
are some of the best written history books that have ever been written. And so remember that. I can't go into all of this. Even the books that I've read, I cannot tell you what's all in there. So don't forget about going there. There are plenty of books on Chancellorsville. Some have called it Chancellorsville, Lee's Greatest Battle. And on May 2nd, Lee is going to send Stonewall Jackson on a daring flanking movement. Now, that old saying is that when you're outnumbered, you don't want to separate your command. Well, if you can do it, do it. And so, there's going to be a big flanking movement. Jackson's going to take his 12,000 men, known as the Foot Cavalry, because they march so fast. Okay, I'm going to throw something in right now about what I just said. This is the problem, podcasters. These are the ripples. These are the ripples. I was in the Marine Corps. Infantry, you know, we walked everywhere. Okay, in Vietnam, the chopper would land you, then we'd walk for three days. When we were in training in California, Camp Pendleton, Okinawa, Camp Swab, up in the northern training area, sometimes the commanders didn't know what to do, so they said, send them out on a 20-mile hike. Okay, so off we'd go. And what I learned real quickly was every hour, we took a 10-minute break. I'm going to tell you something, podcasters, right now. When we got that first break, I remember thinking, I don't need a break. My gosh, this is ridiculous. After 10 minutes, we're up moving again. 50 more minutes to take a 10-minute break. You know, about fourth or fifth break, I was kind of glad we had a break. You know where that came from? Stonewall Jackson. He moved his men, and every 50 minutes, they took a 10-minute break, and that kept them moving at lightning speed, and they got the nickname the Foot Cavalry. And so Jackson's going to move his men, and he's going to attack Hooker's right flank, and he pushes it back for several miles. And then it happened. It gets dark. And Jackson, with a few of his men, decided to go out on a reconnaissance to see what the situation is. And on the way back, Confederate sentries heard horses coming, assumed they were Federals, opened fire, and hit Jackson. Jackson is wounded. They amputate his left arm. He then gets pneumonia, and he dies. He had to be weakened because of the gunshot wounds and the amputation of the arm. Now, podcasters, I am not a doctor. I may have to ask Kaylee this when she gets in nursing school. I know what pneumonia is. Had he not been wounded and he got pneumonia, would he have survived? I don't know. I don't think so. But at any rate, he died. One of the greatest generals in the Confederacy. When Lee heard about Jackson's death, he said, he knew about the amputation of the left arm. He said, Jackson has lost his left arm, and now I've lost my right. Now, podcasters, i got to tell you something right now. You understand? 
when you get around people that are into this war, this civil war, and they're really into it, and they tend to go with the South, I'm going to tell you this right now. There's going to be something that happens at Gettysburg. And when I was in the Civil War Roundtable, we had a gentleman present the Battle of Gettysburg. And there's going to be a moment in the Battle of Gettysburg that that gentleman stopped and he looked at me. And he said, Mr. Stroud, do you think if Jackson was still alive, that had taken that hill? When we get to Gettysburg, I'm going to tell you that there are several things that are going to be discussed for eternity by anyone that's into the Civil War. And one of them was if Jackson was still there. Well, Dr. Gary Gallagher of the University of Virginia Civil War expert says, well, he wasn't there, get over it. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of losing Jackson. Now, I've read biographies on Jackson. And I'm going to tell you something right now that I learned that when Jackson died, they need another commander for that corps. And they appoint Ewell, Richard Ewell. You know who they should have appointed, in my opinion? James Ewell. Brown Stewart, nicknamed Jeb, the greatest cavalryman of the Civil War. Well, let me check that. Depends on how you define greatest. He was certainly the most famous of the Confederate cavalry. Okay, there's some others. You got Forrest, you've got Fighting Joe Wheeler. But I will tell you this Jeb Stewart was one heck of a cavalryman. In reading his biography, that's the man that should have taken over Jackson's Corps. I never knew that till I read that biography. He remains in the Confederate Cavalry. Ewell takes the Corps. There's a place called Stone Mountain, Georgia. You can Google this. There's also a coin, 1925, a Stone Mountain commemorative coin. I've got one of those. If you Google this and go to a coin site, APMEX, Habex, you can go there, put 1925 Stone Mountain Commemorative Coin, and you can see it. And there is Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, each on their horse, and it's been called the last meeting. And this is Lee sending Jackson on that flanking movement, which is where he's going to be killed by, well, wounded by friendly fire and then die. That's not on the monument at Stone Mountain because he got in trouble. He left and he goes and he carves Mount Rushmore and another man put Stonewall Jackson and Jeff Davis and Robert E. Lee on that mountain. Jackson is dead. Now for homework, I want you to go back to my favorite tenor, Tennessee Ernie Ford, and you play Stonewall Jackson's Way. And in Stonewall Jackson's Way, it's going to mention, oh, blue light is going to pray. Jackson was very religious. Very religious. So was Robert E. Lee. But when you listen to 
Tennessee Ernie Ford sang Stonewall Jackson's Way, Oh, Blue Light is Going to Pray. Who's Blue Light? That was one of his nicknames, and we're not sure why he has it. There were Blue Light Presbyterians, and he was a Presbyterian. It may have been that, but you listen to that. You can listen to Dixie again if you want to. And if you like the marching song of the third Arkansas, of course, you can listen to anything that you want to. Find the book on Antietam, The Photographic Legacy of America's Bloodiest Day. Now, the reason I did this today was to tell you what I just told you. That's why. Finish up Antietam, the book, the song, the sword, a shout-out, Bedfordsburg, and Chancellorsville. Let me mention this, podcasters. This is my fault. This is my class. This is my fault. I did this when I was lecturing in class because trying to squeeze in what happened in the Civil War with all the other things they had to do to get into World War II, Korea and Vietnam and all that. And so every now and then, I had the feeling that my students were thinking that the entire Civil War was fought in Virginia and Pennsylvania. And every now and then, a student would ask, Where's Grant? Podcasters, do you have any idea what Lincoln is going through with all these defeats and all of the numbers of the thousands that are dead and the wounded? And what percent of that wound is going to die? About 80%. And they keep going. There is something. There is a light. I did the freedom candle. There is a little light. And that light was Grant. Because we finished Grant at Shiloh. Remember Shiloh nicknamed? Remember Grant? And he continued on. And you know where he is right now? When Lee gets ready to move north in 1863, in July 1863, Grant is at Vicksburg, Mississippi. I'm going to say that again. Grant is at Vicksburg, Mississippi. So with all of the defeats in the east, Grant was keeping them going in the west. And in June of 1863, Lee decides to move the army of northern Virginia north again to Pennsylvania. Remember, Pennsylvania is where he was trying to get when he ran into McClellan at Antietam. And why is he moving north? For the same reasons that he moved north and ended up in Antietam. you got to relieve the farmers because of the, of the feeding of these 75,000 men. I went through all of that before they moved up to Antietam. you got to move up. And also, Lee knows this. They cannot defeat the North. The only thing they can do is convince Lincoln and the Northerners to give up trying to defeat them. If he can hit a knockout blow, a major victory on Northern soil, that might do it. Now, let me mention this. There's no telegram by the foreign secretaries of England and France. 
There's no sentence if Lee wins. Lincoln took care of that with the Emancipation Proclamation. But Lee's moving north to try to win a big victory on northern soil and somehow get the northerners to stop fighting. Now I'm going to tell you something here, and there's something you can use in business, with your family, whatever. I'm going to just give it to you. You use it any way you want to, podcaster. President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy despised Joseph E. Johnston. When he was wounded, Johnston was wounded at Seven Pines, and Lee takes over. They were riding out there because Davis was going to relieve Johnston anyway. And Johnston never did get on the good side of President Davis. What Johnston did not do, he never informed Davis what Johnston was going to do. Johnston never did that. Lee did. But Lee also knew, I believe there's a saying, you'd rather ask for forgiveness than for permission. Lee kept Davis informed, but many times he informed Davis after he already started doing what he was going to do. And that's what he did now. He's informing Davis that he's on the move into Pennsylvania. Oh, podcasters. There is going to be a battle. It's going to be the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. Antietam was the bloodiest single day. Gettysburg will be the bloodiest battle. And that's what the next lecture will be. Hope you all come back. Have a great one.